Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow ended a very volatile week with a record-breaking point gain, 1,985 points, almost 2,000-point move in the Dow. That is an all-time record for point gains. I think percentage-wise, the 9.36% gain is uh, in the top 10. And, of course, most of the other days where you had moves anywhere close to this size was in the protracted bear market during the 1930s. Of course, even despite this 1,985-point rally, we were still down better than 2,600 points on the week. But a lot of stuff that happened this week hadn't happened since the 1920s or 1930s. This was the first week that the Dow had a 4% move in either direction every day of the week since November of 1929, and that was during the stock market crash. And the last time the Dow had two days where the market moved by 9% back to back, and that's what we had uh, yesterday and today, that hadn't happened since October of 1929. Now, the, the catalyst for the rally was a speech right, given by President Trump in the final hour. Going into the final hour, I think we were only up about maybe four, five hundred, six hundred 600 points, I forget. It was a pretty volatile day. In fact, the Dow Jones opened almost 1,000 points higher and then sold off, and at the low point, it was only up about 200. The Russell 2000, which, by the way, significantly lagged on the upside, it was the only major index that wasn't up more than 9%. It was up 7.77%. But it actually went negative by about one5 percent It gapped way up and sold off negative, and then it was able to recover. But the real catalyst was the explosive rally in really the final half hour because Donald Trump was supposed to start talking at three o'clock and he didn't really start until around 3.30. And that's when we had this uh, you know, face ripping, short covering rally into the close because Trump announced the beginning of the national bailout for the coronavirus. And he started by declaring a national state of emergency. So it's not that there's just one area of the country that has an emergency. The entire nation is an emergency zone. And so the entire nation is now eligible for federal bailout money. Of course, the problem is the federal government doesn't have any money to bail anybody out because the federal government is broke, right? The federal government is already running record budget deficits, which are about to get so much bigger, we're gonna shatter those records because we are now going into a recession. If not, we're probably already in one. We'll know when we get the final numbers. But the whole country is pretty much shutting down, right? Not because of the coronavirus, but for fears 
of uh, people getting the coronavirus. Or as I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, I think it has to do with litigation. I think that especially now that it's a natural emergency and once so many companies start shutting down, I think there's so much pressure on the other companies to shut down too, because if they don't, and then one of their employees catches the, the, the coronavirus, the lawsuit is gonna be, well, you should have shut down. It was irresponsible for you to require me to show up and I, you know you subjected me to this disease and this is going on, you know, I mentioned that I first heard about the legal angle uh, regarding a private school in New York that shut down. Well, now, not only is my son Spencer's school in Connecticut shut down, and he goes to a uh, public school, but they shut down all over Connecticut, all over Fairfield County. But I just found out today that my younger kids here in Puerto Rico, and they're at a private school, their school is shut down too. So schools are shutting down all over the country businesses are shutting down and so clearly you know the economic activity is going to grind to a halt uh, in a lot of areas of the u.s economy so clearly we are in a recession so tax revenues are going to go down right and so the government's going to have even bigger deficits so where is the money going to come from trump said one of the reasons that he's declaring the country a state of emergency is because that frees up all kinds of money to spend. What money? The government doesn't have any money locked away somewhere to spend it. Where's that money going to come from? It's going to come from the massive quantitative easing program that the Federal Reserve just announced yesterday. In fact, the only reason that the market wasn't down much more this week than it was was because of the dual bailouts you have the Federal Reserve coming in with massive monetary stimulus, enabling the government itself to come in with massive fiscal stimulus, which is only possible because of the massive monetary stimulus that is going to be financing it. Now, some of the specifics that President Trump mentioned as recipients of the bailout, number one, were students, right? What the president said was he is going to suspend interest payments on all the government student loans, which now the majority of these loans are government loans. I think it's either government direct issued or I don't know if it's just all the government guaranteed loans, but most of the loans now are actually owned by the U.S. government. And so the U.S. government is now, according to Trump, there's going to be a moratorium on interest payments and of course this is open-ended he didn't say for how long he's just saying there's no interest payments now he didn't say that you don't have to make your principal payments but all these student loans any student could call up and ask to uh, forbear to put their uh, student loan payments if they fall on hard times they can uh, ask for the payments to be forborn uh, for a period of time now, under normal circumstances, if you choose not to make any payments on your loan during the time that you're not making payments, you're still accruing interest on the unpaid loan balance. But now the president is saying there's going to be no interest on any of the balance. So there is no penalty to anybody for just not paying their student loans. They could just call up and, and, and put their loan in deferment and there's no cost to that. That means everybody who has a student loan, even if you can afford to make the payments, why wouldn't you just put it into deferment? Why not get an interest-free loan from the U.S. government? I mean, you'd have to be an idiot to turn it down, right? So basically, everybody who is currently making student loan payments to the U.S. government is going to stop because why make the payments if you could just make the payments later and pay no interest between now and then? And of course, why make payments on your loans if your loan might end up being forgiven anyway? I mean, what if Joe Biden wins and he's probably going to win? And there could be some type of student loan forgiveness program under Biden, right? So why not stop making your payments now, right? You're not going to have any interest payments on your loans. So what the hell? It doesn't cost you anything. So stop making your payments and then see what happens with the election. Because then if the student loans get forgiven, well, then you've saved money. Why make payments now on a loan that's going to get forgiven later, especially if there's no penalty 
for you to stop making your payments. So that's what's going to happen. So now where is the government going to get all this revenue, right? Because the government is going to stop collecting all those student loan payments. I'm not really sure how much it is, but we have like 1.6, 1.7 trillion in outstanding student loans. So it's probably what, I don't know, it is 100 billion, 200 billion a year. What are they collecting in interest and principal payments on these loans? So all that's gonna stop. So where's the government gonna get the money? Because the government spending isn't gonna stop. The government spending is gonna go up. So how are we gonna replace all that lost revenue uh, that the government is no longer collecting. Well, the Fed, right? The Fed's just going to print all the money to buy up all these student loans. So it's QE for students, right? Instead of just a bailout uh, for the banks, this is a bailout for people with student loans. We're just going to have the Fed print money and supply it to the government instead of the loan payments that are currently being paid. Now, here is the problem with this. You know, once you open up this door, once you uh, tell all the students, hey, you don't have to make any loan payments, which in effect, that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing. Now people stop making payments on their loans and now they have more money to spend and they find out you know, ways of spending it, right? The minute you have more money, I don't think the people who stop making their student loan payments are gonna take the money that they otherwise would have used to pay their loans and put it in some kind of savings account somewhere you know, for the future. No, they're just gonna start spending the extra money that they're not paying, making loan payments, they'll use it for food, they'll use it for you know, entertainment or rent or whatever, medical care, whatever, whatever the money is there, it's all gonna be spent. And of course, what's gonna happen is during this time period where nobody is making any loan payments, their overhead, right, their monthly nut is likely to rise a bit because they now have a little bit more money. Now, maybe some people will lose their jobs and so uh, they won't have more money, but the, whatever money they're getting, they're gonna start spending it. Here's gonna be the political problem. Once you stop the payments, how do you start them back up again? How do you tell a bunch of people who have gotten used to making no payments on their student loans, oh, now you gotta start paying these loans? Because the minute you do that, right now all of a sudden consumer spending collapses because people who got used to spending all that money, now they have to send it to the government. It's really like a massive tax cut. And since this recession is going to be very long, I mean, Biden is going to inherit a recession from Trump. And I think the recession is going to span the entirety of the uh, Biden administration. So how are they going to basically effectively impose a tax increase on all these people who have student loans during a recession? They're not going to do it. So basically what we're really having here is a backdoor student loan forgiveness program. Right? Donald Trump is stealing Bernie Sanders thunder. He's basically found a way to forgive all the student loans without coming right out and forgiving them because he's telling all the students, you can stop making your payments right now and it's gonna cost you nothing, so stop paying. And once the payments stop, no politician is gonna to want to reimpose them, especially during a downturn. So this is it. We've already got student loan forgiveness paid for by permanent QE infinity by the, the Federal Reserve. But it's not just the students who are getting a bailout. Right? The government is going to try to help bail out the oil companies because Trump said that he has directed the Secretary of the Energy to start buying up oil, massive quantities of oil, and storing it. Now, where is the Secretary of Energy going to get the money? Right? It's not like he's sitting on a pile of money. No, the Federal Reserve is going to supply the pile with its printing press. So now we have QE for the oil company, it's, it's really quantitative greasing is what we've got. We're going to grease the economy literally and figuratively with this quantitative greasing. But how much oil are we going to buy? How much money are we going to print to buy oil? Now, ironically, while I disagree with this, I don't think we should be printing money. I would rather print money to buy oil than to buy treasury bonds. I mean, I think it's better for the Federal Reserve to create money out of thin air and then use it to actually buy a commodity that we that we need, right? In fact, if we were ever going to fill our, our reserves, now is a great time to do it. It's unfortunate that we don't have budget surpluses, and so the government could fill the reserves with its surpluses to have to create money to do it and create inflation. But, you know, if you have Saudi Arabia 
and, and Russia, you know, running the pumps over time and flooding the world with oil, we might as well flood the world with our worthless paper and buy up all that oil. And it kind of takes some of the, the, the sting out of what they're doing in trying to drive the price down. Now, I think oil prices were up about a dollar and a half or so in response to this news. So it didn't really have that big an impact. But again, you know, this is more quantitative easing, more money that the Fed's going to have to print uh, to pay for all the oil that we're going to buy. But then beyond uh, this particular plan, the president really wasn't specific, but he kind of left the door open to bailing out everybody because Somebody asked him specifically about the cruise industry, you know, and the cruise liners and, you know, are we going to bail them out? And Donald Trump didn't say no. He basically said, well, you know, they haven't asked me. He said it's a very important industry. It's a vital industry. And, you know, you know, we need it. He basically said, well, I haven't bailed them out because they haven't asked me for a bailout, which was almost like extending an open invitation to uh, ask for a bailout. Because pretty much everybody who wants one, I think, is going to get one. I mean, certainly if you're a big company and the airline is going to come and is going to get a bailout or the hotel chains or the restaurant chains. But of course, you know, if we're going to bail out the big companies who have political clout, what about the mom and pops? What about the small businesses? Why shouldn't they get a bailout, right? If you own a small restaurant, right? And people aren't eating at your restaurant now because they're worried about getting the coronavirus. Well, where's your bailout? What happens to you? I mean, just not having to make your student loan payments might not be enough. I mean, you may not have any student loans. You might have been dumb enough to pay off your student loans, or maybe you were smart enough to not even go to college and just start your own business, right? But who's going to bail you out? Well, I, I'm sure that the bailouts are coming. We are going to bail out everybody. This is bailout nation. The problem is, we can't bail out everybody because who's doing the bailing? You know, when you have a small segment of the population that is in trouble and needs a bailout, you can do it because you can tax the rest of the population who doesn't need to be bailed out. And that's how you make it possible. But we can't bail out everybody. I mean, think about, you know, an easy analogy. You know, I use the analogy of people, you know, stranded on an island, like, you know, how an economy grows and, and, and why it crashes. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. But let's say, going back to my analogy, you know, from that, that book, there was Abel Baker and Charlie were um, on the island. And every day they went fishing for fish, right? And then eventually, you know, Abel came up with a net. And so they were able to catch more fish. But I'm going to talk about the island before the net was invented. While they're still fishing by hand every day. And in my book, they could only catch one fish a day each. So let's say Charlie gets sick, right? Maybe he caught the coronavirus and now he's in isolation. And he can't fish because he's not feeling well. He needs a bailout. Well, Abel and Baker can say, you know what? We're gonna get, we're gonna share our fish with you. We're just gonna eat a little less every day, and we're gonna give the food that we don't eat to you, and we're gonna provide you with a bailout until you get healthy. And that's that's possible, right? You could do that because you still have two people who can go fish, and they can bail out the guy that can't. But what if all three of them get sick, and they all have got the coronavirus? Nobody can fish. Well, how could they get bailed out? If nobody is fishing, nobody is eating. And so they're all dying. Now, one way they could do it is if in theory, 
they had a savings. They had a supply of fish that they had stored some way that wouldn't perish, right? They they had a fund, a reserve with a bunch of fish in case of emergencies. So if they all got sick, they can tap into their supply of fish and there'd be enough fish in there, assuming it hadn't rotted, right? They may had a way of keeping it fresh, but then they could eat their reserves, right? Because they saved, had they under-consumed in the past. Now, that wasn't really possible before the net. But once, you know, they had a net, you know, and they could, you know, they could have a lot more fish, they could survive because of their capital investment and their savings. But if they don't have any savings, right, they don't have any fish stockpiled, if all three of them uh, aren't fishing, then they're starving. Well, the same is true for the country as a whole, right? The whole country can bail out a small percentage of the country, but how can the country bail out everybody in the country, right? If we all end up not working, right? If none of us go to work, if none of us are providing any services or producing any goods, if we're all hunkered down at home, how are we bailing ourselves out? Where is all the money coming from? You see, if Abel Baker and Charlie, if they didn't have any fish, but somehow they had a printing press and they just printed up a bunch of money and they gave a little to Abel, a little Baker, a little Charlie, what good is that money? They can't eat that money. There's no real value there. The value is producing. You got to go to the sea and come up with a fish. You have to work to get food that you can eat. Printing money doesn't give you anything you can use. And that's true about the society we have today, that we just can't have the Federal Reserve printing up money to bail out every industry in America, every business in America, right, and expect it to work. We're just printing money. The money that we're printing has to collapse. It has to lose dramatic value. And that's what's going to happen. We're going to have massive inflation. You know, it's actually ironic. In one of his State of the Union addresses, I remember President Trump said, America will never be a socialist nation, except he's making it a socialist nation. His whole speech today was about bringing socialism to America. I mean, who needs Bernie Sanders? We've got Donald Trump. But the surprising aspect of it is nobody has figured this out yet. Nobody can see where this is going. I mean, they know that QE has been started and it's going to be massive and the balance sheet is going to explode, right? But they're not even worried. And they forget that the only reason the dollar didn't crash uh, before, the only reason the price of gold stopped going up was because the Fed convinced everybody that they were going to shrink their balance sheet back to pre-crisis levels, that they were going to normalize interest rates. Well, everybody should have figured out by now that that's never going to happen, that that is impossible. Because if we couldn't shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, we sure as hell not going to shrink a $10 trillion balance sheet. If we couldn't normalize interest rates when the national debt was $20 trillion, we're not going to be able to do it when it's $30 trillion or $40 trillion or wherever it's going. If you remember when quantitative easing first started, and of course they didn't call it QE1 when they first did it, just like they didn't call World War I World War I until we had World War II. You know, World War I was initially called the war to end all wars because nobody thought there'd be another one. But then when we had World War II, so soon after the war to end all wars, well, then we were able to name World War I World War I. Well, the same thing with QE1. When we first did QE, Nobody thought there'd be a QE2. I mean, nobody but me. So it was just called quantitative easing. We didn't call it QE1 until they had to launch QE2, which, of course, I knew was coming. But after QE was initially launched, right, and Ben Bernanke was down on Capitol Hill testifying, there were some Republicans back then who didn't like QE, unlike the current president of the United States, who loves QE. I mean, he didn't like it when he was a candidate for president, but now he's you know, beating the drums for as much QE as possible, right? But there were some Republicans who didn't like QE because they thought the Fed was monetizing the debt, which exactly what they were doing. But when Ben Bernanke was asked point blank, and I don't remember who the senator or congressman was, I know it was a Republican, said, you're monetizing the debt. This is not a good thing. Uh, Ben Bernanke denied that. He says, no, 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 we're not monetizing the debt. He said, monetizing the debt is when a central bank buys government bonds permanently. We're not doing that. This is just an emergency. You see, the bonds that we're buying now as part of this QE program, as soon as the emergency is over, 
we're going to sell the bonds back into the market. So we're not monetizing the debt. We're just temporarily buying government debt, and we're going to sell the debt when the emergency is over. So you don't have to worry. We're not a banana republic. Now, when he said that, I immediately came out publicly and said, he's lying or he's completely incompetent. Because I said, once we go down this you know, path, there's no turning back. Once the government buys these bonds, they'll never sell them, right? It's like saying, hey, I'm going to start a heroin habit. I'm just going to start taking heroin. And when I become a real addict and I'm high as a kite, I'm just going to quit the habit cold turkey, no problem. And I'm going to feel just as great without doing the heroin, which of course can never happen, right? To the extent that you can actually quit, you're going to go through withdrawal. But of course, most people aren't going to quit because they don't want to go through withdrawal. And that's exactly why the Fed did QE2, QE3, and now they're doing QE4. And why all the bonds that the Fed bought in 2008 temporarily are still on its balance sheet. In fact, the balance sheet is now at a record high. We don't even know how high the record is, but you know it soared uh, this week. And we'll find out at some point just how many bonds the, the government bought. But now, 2020, now that the Fed has restarted quantitative easing, nobody is going to believe it's temporary. I mean, if anybody was dumb enough to believe it 12 years ago, they sure as hell aren't going to believe it now. So it is a banana republic. We are monetizing the debt. And the debts that we're about to monetize are going to go through the roof. We're going to be talking about three, four trillion, five trillion, because the government's going to keep not collecting taxes and then spending more money. You know, I mentioned yesterday on the podcast of Jim Cramer's nutty idea that the government should temporarily suspend all taxation, right? Just let everybody off the hook. All the government is free. But what I forgot to mention is that according to Jim Cramer, the White House is actually considering his suggestion that they're looking over his ideas. This is our economic advisor now, a talk show host, basically, although I guess I'm hosting a podcast, so uh, who am I to talk? But the fact that Jim Cramer is setting our economic policy, that could be even worse uh, than Larry Kudlow doing it. But we all know that the government is going to grant a lot of tax relief to a lot of companies, and they're going to spend a lot more money bailing out others. So spending is going to go up. At the same time, revenues are going to go down. So the budget's deficits are going to explode. That means the national debt is going to explode and the Fed's balance sheet is going to explode along with it. So how can all this be happening? And the dollar is going up. The dollar had a very strong week this week, one of the strongest weeks in years uh, for the dollar index. And the strong dollar also hurt gold. I mean, gold got clobbered today. Gold was off about $45, but that's following yesterday's uh, big drop. Silver was down more than a buck today. In fact, the gold-silver ratio is 104. That is an all-time record. Silver has never been this cheap in terms of gold in, you know, in modern history. We don't even have a record of when this was true. And, you know, it's not just silver that's falling. All sorts of commodities are plunging in terms of gold, right, which shows massive deflation, which is what you have in a recession where prices are falling in terms of gold. And that's what's happening. And stocks are falling in terms of gold. Even though gold was down this week, if you look at the decline in stocks since this bear market started, stocks are getting a lot cheaper in terms of gold. So everything is coming down. The price of financial assets is coming down in terms of gold. The price of commodities is coming down in terms of gold. So we're having a deflation of a bubble and gold is becoming more valuable. And this sell-off is a great buying opportunity. As I pointed out uh, on yesterday's podcast, when we had the 2008 financial crisis, gold initially sold off. You know, gold went down over 30%. It went from 1,000 to under 700. Now, the correction we've had so far from 1,700 to the low 1,500s, we closed at 1,529, 1,530-ish. That's about a 10% decline so far from the highs. Now, my thought process is I don't think it's going to go 20% down. So somewhere between down 10% and maybe 15%, if we get that low, might be about all that we do. Because remember, when the market collapsed, in 2008, gold had had a big run from 2001. It was under 300. So it tripled basically from under 300 to 1,000. 
And then we had a 35% correction from a tripling. This bull market really started uh, in January of 2006, and gold had a 70% move. It didn't triple. It only moved up by 70%. So I would not expect nearly as big a price correction. And if you look at the chart of gold, there is tremendous support uh, for gold uh, uh, technically. So I don't think there's that much downside in the price of gold. But one of the reasons that I think we got this big drop in the price of gold over the last two days was because we had a huge backup in interest rates. Yields were surging. In fact, my podcast that I did earlier in the week about the potential popping of the bond bubble is looking more and more accurate. I said that maybe we had a blow off top on that Monday when the yield on the 10-year treasury got down to just under 0.4 and the yield on the 30-year was what, around 0.8 or something like that. Because today, the yield on the 10-year is all the way back up to 0.96. Now, that's still low, but it's a lot higher than 0.4. And in fact, we were above 1% intraday. The 30-year now is back at one spot five three, but we got up to about 1.8-ish or something like that. I mean, there was a huge sell-off intraday in the bond market. And if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve, I'm sure that had the Federal Reserve not been buying the hell out of these bonds, right? Because that's when they launched the program. They launched this massive QE program on a day where bonds were getting killed. And it wasn't just uh, treasuries. It was muni bonds. It was corporate bonds. It was a bond bloodbath going on behind the scenes. And the Fed cavalry came to the rescue with this pretty presses are running and, and bought hundreds and hundreds of billions of bonds. So who knows where the yield might be? Maybe the yield on the 30-year would be back up to 3%. Maybe the 10-year would be a 2 Who knows how high? And what that really shows is that the whole bubble is imploding. This house of cards was tumbling down, and it would have tumbled down had it not been for the Federal Reserve artificially propping it up. But again, these props won't work forever because now even greater imbalances are being built that would require stronger and stronger pops, which eventually can never be supplied, and the whole thing comes crashing down. And, you know, the strength in the... Um, the bond market, the rising long-term bond yields, that's probably one of the reasons that the dollar was so strong. And the strong dollar really hit the safe haven currencies, like the yen. The yen was down over 3% today. The Swiss franc got hit hard. And so gold got caught up in that because everything that was perceived as a safe haven really went down today, right? You had Gold going down, the yen going down, the franc going down, and, and treasury bonds going down. So all the safe havens got pr hit pretty hard today. Um, I might as well mention, too, what happened to Bitcoin, which isn't a safe haven, and actually rallied back a little bit uh, during the day today while all the real safe havens were getting killed. So Bitcoin a little bit uh, correlated with the risk assets. But it wasn't a rally that anybody should be excited about. Because as I am recording this, Bitcoin is about 5,700 a coin, which is lower than it was when I recorded yesterday's podcast. The only reason it's a rally is because a few hours after I finished yesterday's podcast, Bitcoin crashed and it went all the way down to about 3,800, below 4,000. It was above 9,000 last week. So it got was down 50, 60% in one week obviously, right, that isn't even close to being a store of value or a safe haven. So it got crashed. And in fact, a lot of those cryptocurrencies, when I was talking about how much they were down, a lot of these altcoins uh, that were down 25, 30% when I was recording yesterday's podcast. Well, a few hours after that, many of these coins were down 50% a piece on the day one day losing half your market value. So those things got obliterated. And I know, again, a lot of the, uh, the Bitcoin guys are taking solace in the fact that gold was down and they think that lets Bitcoin off the hook. But say, hey, all, everything was down. See, gold was down and Bitcoin was down. There's a big difference to being down 10% from the highs and being down 60%, right? To say uh, you're going to compare yourself to gold or claim to be a safe haven or a store of value. And, and gold is still positive on the year. Uh, Bitcoin uh, is not. So the safe havens getting clobbered, uh, bond yields going up, the dollar going up, that really was a big uh, hammer or one, two, three combination 
uh, that, that beat up the gold market. But the real casualties were not gold bullion, but the gold mining stocks, which got hit very hard yesterday on the close. And I talked about the big drop that we had, particularly in the smaller, less liquid names that would be in the GDXJ, which is a junior mining index. Well, that index actually gapped up maybe about 10% this morning because it had been so beaten down on the close yesterday that it, it gapped way up. You know, it was actually up more than the market percentage-wise, the stock market. But then it gradually sold off. And, you know, by the last hour, by the time Trump gave his speech, I think it was only slightly positive. But then the market started to roll over. And probably by about 10 minutes before the end of the day, the GDXJ was down about 23, 24%, maybe 25, I forget the exact percentage. And the GDX as well was down almost as much. There was an avalanche of selling that took place in the final half hour of the day. You know, and it was just get me out at any price. And it was just a complete collapse until the final few minutes because the GDXJ only closed down 10%. So it recovered more than half its losses in the final trades, which did at least show me that there was some bargain hunting. At the end of the day, there was some money that was there waiting to buy up some of these ridiculous bargains, my own included. I bought into the close and I put more money into, into my fund again today. As I've been saying, I've pretty much been buying almost every day on the way down, just taking advantage of this opportunity. You know, that's what people should do. Because if you don't take advantage of the opportunity, the opportunity takes advantage of you. And that's what's happening to a lot of people. But I've got a lot of emails uh, from people kind of asking me for what is the explanation? Why is this happening? Why are gold stocks collapsing? Well, I touched on it yesterday. One of the reasons is that gold didn't have a big rally, you know, as a result of this crisis. Of course, it had rallied for the last, you know, couple of years before the crisis, right? Just like it did going into 2008. And there were a lot of people like me that expected that when the Fed was slashing interest rates and going back to QE and going into a recession, things that I knew were going to happen, but things that surprised the hell out of just about everybody else. So when all the things that I knew were going to happen happened, it was natural for me to assume that gold would go up, right? Because I didn't think anybody else knew this stuff. But I thought, well, they would be buying gold if they did. But despite the fact that all this stuff happened, people still don't get it. People still don't understand the nature of the problem. I think they're still focusing on the pin, the coronavirus, and not the bubble that the pin pricked. And so they still are minimizing the effects on the economy and the vulnerability of the economy. And they still don't really get where we're going with quantitative easing and the budget deficits and the Biden administration. And so the initial reaction after gold didn't skyrocket, right, because the crisis started, stocks started tanking long before the gold stocks really started tanking. But once gold didn't take off and then started to have these bigger drops, these three, four percent drops, right? Uh, the gold stocks started to, started to sell off. But what I think caused the big decline both yesterday and today, and the reason that I think the declines happened late in the day rather than early, is this is what I'm thinking was happening. I think that people wanted to sell their stocks, right? People were calling up their brokers and putting in uh, orders or People were putting in limited orders earlier in the day. They wanted to get out, but they just didn't want to hit the bid. Uh, but so they put it in order uh, and they, they put a limit price in and they weren't getting filled and the market was moving against them. And um, maybe some other uh, clients called their brokers and they said, look, I want to be out by the end of the day. But they gave the broker some price discretion to try to get a good price. Uh, and since the market started high, maybe they put some higher limits and then the market kept moving away and maybe they were moving their limits down, but you know, they had the entire day. So they weren't just hitting the bid. They were trying to uh, get a better print. Maybe that's also happening with mutual funds who are getting a lot of redemptions. Maybe the fund companies were like, well, I don't want to sell right here. Let me get a little bounce back. 
Um, you know, some people might have had margin calls and they might have thought, well, you know, I have to be out by the end of the day, but, you know, let me see. Maybe if it turns around, I won't be on call. Maybe I won't have to send more money or I won't have to sell my stocks. Let me just see how it plays out. You know, maybe we'll have a big rally today. So I think earlier on the day, people are hoping to get better prices. They're hoping for a rally. And maybe also, you know, you have all these uh, ETFs, these exchange traded funds, like I talk about the GDX and the GDXJ. And so they may have had some direct redemptions that required that they liquidate some of their holdings. And again, I think maybe the, the, the guys who are liquidating them were holding off on the orders, hoping to get better prices. And then what happens is in the last hour, last half hour, and you still haven't been filled, but you need to get out that day because you run a fund and you've got redemptions or you have a margin call and you got to be out that day and people didn't want to be long over the weekend now there might have been some day traders too that got in earlier in the day got on the long side maybe they bought the dip or they were hoping that we'd have a rally today after the big sell-off yesterday and so you had some people who were day trading who had to be out by the close and once it started to collapse well they had no choice but to sell at the market because that was the only way to get out and so all of a sudden these limit orders all were market and then there was probably market on close orders so i just think you had this huge imbalance into a market that is not very liquid there's not that many people who are buying gold stocks compared to people buying tech stocks or all kinds of other stocks that more and more people are interested in buying uh, and i think the same thing yesterday too and i think even yesterday's last minute collapse got people thinking that maybe it would happen again and maybe it even became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, that it happened again but I think there were some people who were prepared for it that's why I think that buying came in in the final minute or two of trading because maybe some people were seeing if it would get a collapse and so they didn't buy they were waiting for the close right they were thinking hey I want to buy some gold stocks but you know yesterday they really got killed on the close so I'm going to hold off right I'm going to try to buy the close and so buying that might have been taking place earlier in the day those orders weren't there which is why we had this big sell-off but now all of a sudden everybody that was holding off on buying all at once rushes in to buy the clothes and all of a sudden it goes from down 22 percent to down 10 percent because you had these uh you know market on close orders from people who thought they were going to buy the low uh just like yesterday they end up you know buying well off the low but look i know it's very uh dis disheartening uh to watch this i mean people who have been buying gold stocks you know it's like everything is happening that we have thought was going to happen yet now we're losing money right we're not making money because our gold stocks are going down but what's really happened is we've been given the opportunity to make even more money because we know that these stocks are going to go up just like they went up from 2009 through 2011 right once the fed really started going with the qe program and the bailouts right once all that happened the dollar started tanking gold started soaring and gold stocks went ballistic the same thing is going to happen again this time, except it's going to be a much bigger move because there's no way to turn it off. There's no way for the Fed to stop it because this is QE infinity and nobody is going to believe it's anything other than QE infinity. So I just think, you know, it's just an opportunity. And I know at our own mutual fund, I mean, we've actually had net inflows during the week. So, you know, that's great. My clients are not panicking. They're not selling into this uh, vacuum. Uh, but clearly that's not what's happening uh, with other people. And, you know, there may be other people that bought into the gold market that don't necessarily have the conviction uh, to, to ride this out or don't really understand. Maybe they just jumped on board because it was going up and they really didn't know any better. Remember, you know, you had Kramer was on CNBC recommending some gold stocks. And so maybe people just took his advice and bought. And then when they went down, they just bailed out. I mean, who knows? There was a lot of things that could explain this. But what I do know for a fact is that the fundamentals for the gold mining industry have probably never been better. The fundamentals for gold bullion have certainly never been better. So to me, the opportunity to buy these stocks, a lot of these stocks now are trading at where they were back in December of 2015, January of 2016, at the end of the bear market, before this bull market began, when gold was bottoming out just over 1,000. We're still, you know, above 1,500. So we've had better than a 50% rise in the price of gold over those four plus years. And now we could buy gold stocks as if none of that increase had ever happened. 
And of course, back then, did people realize that gold would be 1,500? Four years later, no. When gold was 1,050, back at the end of 2015, everybody thought gold prices were going to 800, 700. I remember because I was buying stocks back then thinking that they were nuts, that gold was gonna go higher. So when gold was at 1,000, headed to 800, 700, many gold stocks were more expensive than they are right now. That tells you how cheap they are and how quickly this sale is gonna end once the panic sellers have been flushed out. Anyway, a final thought though is, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about the coronavirus itself because I know a lot of people you know, think uh, maybe I'm minimizing the actual you know, health problems of the coronavirus. And I don't know, I mean, I read a lot of things about the coronavirus uh, that in a way, you know, maybe uh, the threat is actually as great as uh, everybody says, but I, I, I tend to think that it's being exaggerated, not only here, but all around the world. I mean, certainly you can err on the side of caution, right? Because of all, you know, we don't know how bad it could be. So we can all just take precautions. And especially again, with the litigious nature of society, I think we're gonna end up taking a lot of precautions that we probably otherwise would not make. Now, whether that ends up being a good thing or a complete waste, I mean, I happen to think it's probably more the latter. I mean, do we really need to give all the teachers a free vacation? I mean, are kids really gonna get the coronavirus? I mean, if kids get it, nothing really happens to them, right? If you look at all of the data so far, look at countries like Italy, right, where, you know, you have a lot of cases. And if young people get it, nobody dies. I mean, some of them barely get sick. Now, I know, well, maybe the kid could give it to his grandparent, right? And they have a much better chance of, of dying from this disease, right? I mean, if you look at the, the, the mortality levels, right, it's very, very minimal. Even people up to 50, I mean, the death rate is tiny. It's only when you get above 80, right, that you have a real significant uh, percentage where it's a lot deadlier than the flu, uh, you know, when you're, when you're 80 and older. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult. If, you, if you're saying, look, a lot of 80-year-olds are dying, yeah, a lot of 80-year-olds die. I mean, that's when most of us die. If we're lucky, we live into our 80s. In fact, I looked up just for, you know, the hell of it, for the life expectancy for somebody who's 80. And in the United States, if you're 80 and you're a man and you're white, right? It's, they're actually lower for a lot of minorities. But if you're white and you're a man and you're 80 years old, you could expect to live to 87. And if you're a woman, your life expectancy from 80 is 89. So what that means is most people who make it to 80, they don't make it to 90. So people are dying in their 80s. Now, some of these people happened to catch the coronavirus and then they also died. Now, I don't know how much they're checking for other variables as to would some of these people have died anyway? I mean, maybe the coronavirus accelerated their death by days, by weeks, by months, we don't know. But the fact that there's such a big disparity between people over 80 dying and anybody else, it tells you that the, the problem with the virus maybe is not the virus itself, but the fact that if you have other problems and you get the virus at the same time, that's the problem. And so it may be that even if you're over 80 and you're very healthy and you're in good shape, then you're probably okay. I think that the 80 plus year olds who are dying are pretty sick. They have other problems. And this is just, you know, the, the straw that breaks that camel's back. And so that's probably who has to worry, right? You probably, if you're in your 80s and you have, you're in bad health, yeah, you know, you definitely shouldn't be traveling and you should definitely stay at home and order in and, and take all these precautions. But I think for everybody else, I think, you know, these NBA basketball players, people are worried, oh, they're gonna touch the ball. These guys are in great shape. What's the odds that any of these NBA players who get the coronavirus are gonna, you know, are gonna die? None of them are gonna die. These are prime conditioned athletes, you know. Now, the stands, I mean, if I was uh, older, you know, I wouldn't want to go to a basketball game if I was older and I had some problems, you know, knowing that there could be a coronavirus there and I might catch it. Uh, but again, all of this, we are overreacting most likely. Now, you could say, well, you know, better safe than sorry. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a degree. I think this thing is feeding on itself at this point and it's just snowballing. 
right? Uh, and as, as some businesses close, then there's pressure on more businesses to close. And then the president declares a state of emergency and all this thing is happening. We're just ginning up all this fear. We're just doing it to ourselves and, and stirring us up into a frenzy. But, you know, maybe this could be just an excuse, right? We could say, well, you know, the only reason that the economy is back in recession, the only reason that QE is happening is because of the coronavirus. And like, but for the coronavirus, everything would be great. See, I don't buy that at all. If it wasn't the coronavirus, it would have been something else. Look, the Fed called off the rate hikes long before the coronavirus. The, the collapse in 2018 happened before the coronavirus, right? So that already happened. The Fed had already started cutting interest rates. The uh, blow up in the repo market and really the beginning of QE4, all of that happened before the coronavirus. So anybody who wants to say, hey, Peter, yes, you predicted the Fed would go back to zero and you predicted QE, but you got lucky because it only happened because of the coronavirus. Uh Uh-uh. Coronavirus is the pin. There was going to be a pin. Every bubble finds a pin. It's just a question of which one. But whether this coronavirus crisis ends up being a real crisis or a manufactured crisis, the one thing I know for certain is our federal government is not going to let this crisis go to waste. Neither Congress nor President Trump is going to waste one bit of it, especially in an election year, and especially an election year that's going to include a recession and a bear market. So in other words, it's going to be a bipartisan spending orgy, right? We're going to pass all these special programs, spending programs that the Democrats want because the Republicans are going to sign on to them. And we're going to get tax cuts that the Republicans want because the Democrats want to sign on to it. Nobody wants to say no to anything, right? There's no program that we can't afford. Why? Because we have the Fed. Right. We have uh, Jerome Powell, who has the largest quantitative easing program ever imagined. You know, what we're going to actually do is run an experiment in modern monetary theory. Now, we don't actually have to experiment in it because they've tried this in many nations and it's always failed. But we're going to do it again. We're going to crank up the printing presses because everybody believes that deficits don't matter and we can have something for nothing. So we're going to print so much money, right? Our quantitative easing program is going to be so huge that it would even make Mugavi blush. (laughs) 